This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made man in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahal-el. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahal-el 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahal-el had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahal-el lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahal-el were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Now you might think, wow, Dennis, could you have bored us more by reading that genealogy? Why in the world would you waste... um, Let's get on to Noah. Why? I mean, no preacher stops at Genesis chapter 5. They nod that it's there and they move on. Um, Well, hopefully not all do that. Because we're not going to do that this morning. I think that what I want us to do is begin to look and consider the fact that this genealogy is here for a reason. And I want to commend to you the fact that when you get to 
First Chronicles and you're reading through the Bible and you go, oh, I'm just going to skip Chronicles or I'm at least going to skip till about three-fourths of the way through it where it gets back to some narrative and get out of all these begatting, begatting, begatting. I want to encourage you that maybe you might take some time to actually read those and give some serious consideration to genealogies because there is a reason why they're there. All Scripture is God-breathed except for the genealogies, right? And that's kind of the way we tend to think sometimes. And, and so I really wanted um, both for our own edification to really take some time to look at this and say, is there a really significant reason why the writer of Genesis is inspired by the Spirit to write down this genealogy, and in fact the genealogy just before it as well, they must be telling us something. What I want us to think about then is that these two genealogies here are laid up back to back for a reason. And, and we're going to start to look at that and unpack that. And I want us to consider that. And hopefully by the time we're done, we'll start to say, wow, um, I'm really glad we have these genealogies because they really are pointing us to something and really helping us to consider some things. The first thing I want us to look at then this morning of this is the first point, if you're taking notes in such a way, is the heritage. And I want you just to look and consider this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5, and it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, what I want you to realize is what's going on here is, is throughout Genesis, you'll keep seeing this thing where it says, These are the generations of... This, this idea of there's generations of. There was generations of the earth. Now we're moving to the generations of Adam. And what we're going to see in Adam is going to take us all the way to Noah. And after we get through the whole story of Noah, we have the generations which get us from Noah down to ultimately heading to Abraham. And so there's a, there's a reason why you're being given this information. You're heading towards something. And so that's part of the reason why you have a, gene, a, a genealogy. But what we see here is, is that this particular chapter is saying, look, here was Adam. And here's how we get to Noah before we start to take, once again, a more in-depth look. And I haven't said this to you in the past, but one of the things that's true about Genesis is Genesis constantly gives you big scene, very focused scene. Big perspective, very focused perspective on certain key events that happen. And here we are stepping back once again, kind of like Genesis 1 was a stepping back and looking at the big picture. And then we moved into the garden specifically. We're now stepping back once again and looking at the big picture before we once again come in and say, okay, why is Noah significant. Why, why, why do we come back in and take a, a hard look there? So that is part of what's going on here. But the thing I want you to, to realize, and as we look at this and see what's happening here, when I talk about the heritage, is the fact that, it, look at what it tells us. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man, and they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now what I want you to look at when I talk about the heritage is this. It's not that the writer of Genesis 5 doesn't know that the fall has happened, okay? So don't start reading this and going, well, yeah, he should say that he, he passed on to him a broken image, a defiled image, a screwed up image. Genesis 5 is trying to tell us something. Genesis 5 is saying, despite the fact of Genesis 3, the image of God, even deformed, is passed on, and that's not insignificant. And it's being passed on specifically from Adam to Seth. It's making a very clear statement saying, look, there's something significant going on here with this group of people because they are not of the seed of Cain, the seed of the serpent. They're of the seed of the woman. And he's trying to draw us in and say, look, there's a heritage that's being passed on. Adam has been given the promise, just like Eve has of Genesis 3.15, I will send forth someone to crush 
the serpent. And so what we see here then is a heritage which is being passed on. Adam is passing on both the image of God and the faith of the true people of God to his children. And that's the heritage. Now I want you to understand how important that is because do you understand as parents we pass on by God's mercy the heritage, the image of God is passed on to our children from us. And we have the great privilege as believers, and some of us have generations of this. I was talking to my dad the other day after Reformation Sunday, and I was just remarking to him saying, you know, I told Jeshua, I said, Jeshua, do you realize I know of six generations of Hermerdings that have sung a mighty fortress of God? And my dad said, oh, there's much more than that. We know of at least seven or eight generations down to Jeshua of men who have professed faith in Christ, families that have professed faith in Christ, moving down through hundreds of years that have stood singing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And what I'm saying to you is in some ways what you need to see happening in Genesis 5 is this great testimony of here, are these, here is this generation of people who keep passing it on. We know that God is a great God and we continue to follow Him. There's this sense of this heritage that's being passed on, the heritage of the faith. And Genesis 5 is saying, Adam passed it on. And we need to see that and realize how important that is. I want you to see the value of that, that there is something significant being told here, that the line of the woman is passing on the image. And with that image is this knowledge that there is a God. He has made us for himself. We have rebelled. We have left the faith. And he has called us back to himself. He has drawn us back. And he has made a promise that one is coming that will relieve our burden, that will give us rest, that will provide for us comfort to our weary souls. And you see that at the conclusion of this, right? We get to Noah and what does Lamech say? Perhaps from the cursed ground will come this one who will give us rest, who will provide us comfort. So we see this knowledge has been passed down through the generations. This heritage, this wondrous, glorious reality of the image of God, even though it's defiled and broken. And the faith which says, but that's not the end of the story. That's not all there is. Hope has not been lost. And so that's the first thing I want us to see that we're seeing as we look all the way through, as we read through this genealogy, we're seeing that idea. The second thing, and we see it here, it says, and he blessed them, is the blessing. Now, one of the things I want you to understand throughout the Old Testament from Genesis 3 on, and I don't know how I'm going to do this in a very brief period of time, but I'm going to try, and if you have questions, you can always call me later. But I want you to realize all the way through the Old Testament, there is this whole understanding of how God operates with people. There's a conditional way he operates with people. If you do this, I will bless you. If you do this, I'll curse you, those kind of things. But there's also an unconditionality that's working right alongside of it. And how we know this? Well, I'll just use King David as an example. King David should have been taken out and stoned. You do understand that. You do understand God's law said if you commit adultery... The penalty is you get stoned. What do you do with that? At some point you have to say there's something going on behind the scenes which seems to be unconditional. It seems that it's not David being perfect without... How is that? Because God's standard didn't change, right? You shall be perfect as I am perfect. And when God says perfect, he doesn't mean, well, almost perfect. It's not like the princess bride, mostly dead. It's perfect. He expects us to be 
unflawed in any way. Perfect. David wasn't perfect. And yet, he's not destroyed. He's not stoned. He's not cut off. How is that? So we see this tension running throughout the entire Old Testament of conditionality and unconditionality. And the Old Testament does not relieve the tension. It remains. And so we need to understand that there's a reason for that. But we need to see that. Now, I'm only saying that so as we start to look at the blessing, I want you to start to see how this works out. Notice that what happens here is that Adam is not kept from having children. Cain wasn't kept from having children, and neither is Adam. Adam fathers their children, and his children father other children, and his children father children and children and children and children. And you might think, well, okay, great. That's kind of normal and natural. But see, do you understand that when you sin against God, when you basically say, God, I don't care what you've said. I'm going to do what I want to do, which is what Adam and Eve had said. God owed them nothing. See, we need to really believe when the Scriptures say children are a blessing from the Lord. They're not a mandatory requirement. And I'm afraid sometimes in the church, we too often put way too much pressure on people. I think if you're married, you ought to desire to have children. I think that you ought to. But not everybody does for a variety of reasons. And many of those reasons have nothing to do with their sin which far too often is what people seem to get wrapped around the axe about. Well, they don't have kids. They must not really like kids. They must not really care about children. They must, they're all about themselves. See, they've got a new car. See, they've got that new, they've got their hobbies. And we make these assumptions when, in fact, they may be infertile. They may have spent thousands of dollars, like one of our next-door neighbors did, trying to have children, doing everything they know humanly possible to have a child of their very own, to no avail. You have no idea. And the point here is is that we live too often, too, in a world where no matter what you think about birth control, and I really don't care what you think about that, the reality is, is whether you believe in it or don't believe in it, guess who opens the womb? Let's be very clear about this. God. God opens the womb. And no pill and no plastic makeup thing is going to somehow stop God from allowing children to be born if that's what He determines to have happen. God opens and closes wombs. Period. So whatever you want to do is fine with me. I don't really care. The bottom line is never lose sight of the fact that it's God who opens and closes wombs. It's a blessing from the Lord to have an offspring. It is not a given. And part of the reason why we should take genealogy seriously is the fact that when we see, and this generation begat this generation begat this generation begat this generation, it should not just be assumed, well, that's that's the normal way life operates. No, it's a blessing of the Lord. Every child in this room is a blessing of the Lord. They're not a given. They're a treasure. And everybody in this room was somebody's treasure and probably still is if that parent is still alive. You know, my mother's famous statement to me, well, you know, you'll always be my baby. Just don't tell anybody else that. (laughs) But see, there's a point to where we need to really grab hold of the fact that we sometimes get very naturalistic in our thinking. 
People have sex. They produce children. It's just a normal way of things. And what Scripture, I think, is often saying to us is people come together and have marriages and God, out of His mercy and grace, allows them to procreate. He lets that continue to be a reality. And we should not treat it loosely. The second thing I want you to notice in about blessing is this. Did you notice how long these people lived? And if you go back to to um, Cain's line, do you notice that no numbers are given to us there? And see, one of the things I want to again suggest to us is don't get wrapped up in, well, they lived a long time because it was before the flood and start creating all these naturalistic reasons why people might... That's not the point either. You miss the whole point when you have that discussion. The reason why they lived long is because they were God's people, period. This is not talking about natural longevity because the earth was... The earth may have been different. It may have been more like a terrarium. I have, I wasn't there. I don't know. But I know that this text is not trying to tell me that. What this text is telling me is that God gave these people long life because of His special blessing and favor. We have no reason to necessarily believe that any of the people of God lived for an extended period. Of, I mean, any of the people of Cain's line lived beyond 70 or 80 years. Nothing tells us that. In fact, the silence of it and the fact that we're seeing it in Genesis 5, these long periods of time these people lived, is to draw a distinction. That's its point. It's to say these people were blessed of God. And notice that in Deuteronomy, what are people told? If you follow in my ways, what's one of the blessings you get? If you honor your father and mother, it's the first command with a promise. You will live long in the land. And remember who Genesis is being written for. People who have heard God from Sinai and know what Deuteronomy says. So we see the realities of God's blessing coming upon these people and giving them an extended period of life. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that if you really try and be a really good person and, and honor the Lord that you're going to live for 800 or 900 years. Quite frankly, I don't know about the rest of you, but I have no such desire to live that long. I mean, I think it's great for them, and I'm very grateful that they live that long. I have no desire to do so. If God wants me to, so be it. But that's not the idea that I'm looking for. The second, the third thing I want you to notice is the vitality of life. Look at how old these men were having these babies. I mean, they were old. They had lived a long time before they had kids. You know, we're talking to people when they're in their 30s. You're going to have some children here pretty soon? Clock is ticking. I mean, what, what would you do with these guys? I'm 182 years old, and I've just birthed my firstborn son. I mean, but do you understand how the text is really trying to draw us in and show us this longevity of life and this vitality of life? God is sustaining and caring for these people, giving them vigor and enabling them to carry on. You know, and some, for some of us, I kind of wish I had 100 years to, to grow up and get fully prepared before I had children and then still had the energy to raise them well. I think for all of us, I mean, can you appreciate having 180 years to figure out yourself, your world, everything around you, and then God gives you some children? I'm thinking, man, that's a good plan. So what we see here, though, is that all of this is a, is a sense of God's blessing on these people. And if we could just stop there, boy, it'd be a great, we'd say that was a great Thanksgiving message, and it's thanks. Go out. Strive as hard as you can to love the Lord with all your heart. Strive to raise your children in a godly way. Don't take for granted His heritage. Don't take for granted His blessings. Amen. But that's not all this text says. 
See, there's more to the story. And what I want us to do then is to look and realize that there's a problem in all this. There's this heritage, which is wonderful. There's this blessing, which is glorious. And there's this problem that the text keeps repeating. What happened to Adam? And he died. What happened to Seth? He died. What happened to Enosh? He died. What happened to Mahalalel? He died. Kenan, he died. Methuselah, got 969 years underneath this belt and he died. Lamech, he died. Cannot get away from it. The text is screaming at you. All these great things and here's what's happening. And in spite of it, they still die. And if we could just say that, if we could just stop there and say, okay, death, it's a problem. We've got to deal with death. But that's not the only problem. Because, see, it'd be nice if Genesis 5, if, you know, if the chapters and the verses were actually inspired, we could stop at the end of Genesis 5 and say, okay, stop right there and, and have a nice, clean, easy. The problem is this actually goes from verse 1 of chapter 5 all the way to verse 8 of chapter 6, because you realize in verse 9 it says, and these are the generations of Noah. So everything that's happening in those first eight verses of Genesis chapter 6 have to do with this genealogy. And So we've got death. That's one problem on our plate. But look at what else we're told here. Go down to chapter 6. And it says that when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born of them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Then the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now again, we could say, well, yeah, that's all that seed of Cain stuff, and now let's get back to chapter 5, talking about all this seed of the woman stuff. That's, that's encouraging. Well, see, the problem is, is what Genesis 6 is telling us at the very beginning is that remember what I told you about Cain's daughter, Lamech's daughter? Remember I told you what her name was? Her name meant gorgeous, beautiful, attractive, she was the Cosmo woman. What does it say at the beginning of verse 6? And the daughter, and, the, and when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, so the daughters of man were attractive. They were beautiful. They were gorgeous. And they took as their wives any they chose. Now, I'm not going to get in. I don't, we don't have time this morning to get into all the discussion. You're just going to have to trust me on this. And if you want to debate me afterwards, that's great. Sons of God are the generations of chapter 5. That's who it is. I realize there's people who don't agree with that. You can read commentaries. It'll disagree. That's fine. But if you look at the context of this passage and you look at it in its entirety, what you see is here's the end of the line of Cain attractive, here's all the sons of God and this hope, and now all of a sudden you see that the sons of God and the daughters of men, the two seeds, unite in marriage. And remember what Jesus says in Luke, angels can't marry. This isn't about just 
having intercourse. It's about marriage. And they married. Angels don't marry. That's significant as to who the sons of God are. So we get to the sons of God. It's those two lines. And they merge. What's the problem? What happens? Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Because we always know how missionary dating works out, right? It's, it's, a, great, it's a great endeavor. You know, you, you go out with that guy who's just this wild, insane you know, person, and, and you figure, you know what? I'm just going to keep, keep loving him to Jesus. The problem is that the more you love him, too often what happens is you start loving Jesus less. And the same thing's true of a guy who falls in love with that girl. They start loving Jesus less. Because you've got a person who's moving in a direction that's inconsistent with where God is calling you. That's why Scripture continually says, do not unite yourself to unbelievers. It's not because we think unbelievers are horrible, wicked, vile people, and somehow we're not. It is rather a reality of who's are you going to be and who are you going to follow. And we see that problem right here in Genesis chapter 6. The sons of God begin to unite themselves with the sons of men. And what ultimately happens is we get down to chapter or to verse 5. And every intention of their heart was only evil all the time. And you realize the problem here is not just who you marry. The problem is, is much more significant than that. Here, here's what I want you to see then about evil. The real crime is not seen in the daughters of men because they're doing exactly what they're true to their nature, right? They're being who they are, and they're, they're attractive, and the sons of God want to go to them. Rather, what's really the text is saying to us is the real problem is with the, the seed of the woman going after the daughters of men, going after them, going after what they bring to the table. Seeing that as what's valued. And what it ultimately points to is, is that their perverted actions begin to show forth a perverted mind, which begins to show forth a perverted being. This isn't just about their, what they did. It has to step back and say, well, what were they thinking? And if you start to say, what were they thinking, you have to ask, well, who are they? And how are they ultimately operating? What's ultimately driving them? And that then leads us to sin. And I want you to notice that what's being said here about this whole issue of evil and sin, every intention of their heart. I want you to think about this. That idea in verse 5 basically is saying it's talking about the intensive nature of sin. It's getting worse. It's, it's, it's multiplying. It's getting more intense and more intense. The extensive nature of sin, it's getting wider and wider and wider. And the comprehensive, there's not one aspect of life that's left untouched. So its intensity has increased, its extensiveness has increased, and it comprehensively is overwhelming the earth. And there is no relief. And that may give you some insight into why Lamech, when Noah is born, says maybe this one will bring us some comfort in the midst of it only getting worse and worse and worse. Do you see the problem? No matter how good the godly line may be, they die. And even their goodness, and even that heritage that they supposedly are passing on, and even the parenting, which hopefully they were trying to do well, and even the church, which is what they were, the Old Testament church, the church, what we start to see here is, is the church needs a Savior. It's not enough 
to say, well, I'm in the church. It's not enough to say, I've been baptized and catechized and I'm being sanctified and I know I'm justified. It's not enough to know all that stuff and just to tell people that stuff. There's something bigger going on here. Do you see that? Do you see that Genesis 5 is saying, we need something bigger than just a godly heritage. We need something bigger than just being good parents. All that is important, and please don't let me in any way, shape, or form diminish it. But do you understand what the text is saying? Despite the best efforts of the godly seed, we still end up at 6-5. Every intention of their heart was only evil continually. Do you see the problem? It's very real. The text is drawing you there. This isn't just me. It's pulling you down, 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 down. And it's horrific. Just imagine a world full of Stalins and Hitlers and realize that you're not their second cousins, you're their brothers and sisters. Only evil continually all the time. And they died, and they died, and they died. Do you feel it? Do you sense the dilemma? And you might say at this point, and rightfully so, well, wait a minute, Dennis. Let's talk about Enoch. Let's talk about Noah. Well, let's talk about them, because I think that's important. Enoch shows us two things in his life. He shows that eternal life is not impossible, right? Don't you sense that when you get to he died, he died, and... Enoch walked with God, and God took him, and he was no more. What happened to him? Somehow he, he breaks the line. There's, there's death before him, there's death after him, but he doesn't die. See, he's supposed to stand out and say, eternal life is not lost. And don't lose sight of the fact that Enoch walked with God. Enoch obeyed God. Enoch sought after God. And God was merciful to him. And God translated him to heaven. So it is telling us something that there is possible that at least one could possibly obey and go to heaven. It's possible. We see it. And then we get down to Noah. And we start to see in Noah the reality of this. Hope hinges on one who is able to give us rest and that one can obey for the benefit of others. Because what happens with Noah, we're going to find this out next week when we start to look at it, is, is that when the ark happens, notice it never tells us what Noah's wife did, what Noah's children did. It only tells us what Noah did. Noah obeyed God. And God let all his posterity go into the ark with him. And he shut the door. So again, we start to see hints of, okay, someone could obey and other people could actually get the benefit for it. But there's only one problem. If we could just stop there with Noah, it'd be great. But what do we know happens to Noah? Well, he sins. And what else do we know happens to Noah? He dies. And you see the tension that Scripture is mounting. It's saying that even Noah, there's this pointing to something that's got to come. But these are not it. Enoch is not it. Noah is not it. 
And so what I want us to see then is this, that when we get to Matthew chapter 1, what do we find there? We find a genealogy. And that genealogy begins to take us back all the way to the person of Abraham, which all the genealogies in Genesis right now are leading us all the way to. Not only that, in Luke chapter 3, what do we find? We find a genealogy that starts with Jesus' line and works us all the way back to Adam, the son of God. Right here in Genesis chapter 5, we find out that Adam was that person. And what we begin to see then, if we really begin to grab hold of it, is that this problem of sin, this problem that we're facing, which is bigger than good parenting, which is bigger than being a faithful church, we need something more. We need a Savior. And what the New Testament begins to say is, and God has sent one. God has sent Christ to be the Savior of people. Don't put your hope in society. Don't put your hope in being great parents. Don't put your hope in the church as an institution. Don't put your hope anywhere else but in only one who can actually accomplish what is necessary. And if you would do me a favor, if you have a Bible next to you, and you should, if you would turn to Colossians, we'll conclude with these words. And I want you to see the flavor of Colossians in light of Genesis chapter 5 and the opening verses. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I want you to listen to these words as, and listen to what we've talked about and listen to what it says. Beginning in verse 11, the Apostle Paul prays, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness where people do what is evil all the time and only evil all the time. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. See, we got an image problem. And that image problem is not what other people think about us. The image problem is, in fact, who we really are. Adam's image was flawed. We all know that. And what we see here is one who is better than Adam, who brings us the image of God. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And listen to this. And he is the head of the body, the church. And see, if you read Genesis 5 and say, this is a testimony about the church, and you realize that it's talking about the church of the Old Testament, you start to realize why that's so important when we get to the new. He was given to the church. Why? Because it's not just those people out there that need a Savior. It's everybody sitting in this room that needs one. The church needs a king who is able to save them. And he goes on to say, and he is the beginning, and here's the hope, the firstborn of the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. Do you hear how Paul, whether he's trying to directly take us back to Genesis chapter 5, is not the most important thing. The point is, is that everything you've been just been reading in these two chapters is directly discussed right here in Colossians. 
We need image dealt with. We need death dealt with. We need goodness, which is beyond our ability to provide for ourselves, dealt with. We need someone who can perfectly obey. It's been dealt with in the person and work of Jesus. And if you don't know Him this morning, I would ask that if you would speak either to me or to someone else in this building who you do know knows Him, so that you too might exit out of the domain of darkness and enter into the kingdom of a beloved son who has conquered death and evil and sin so that you might live. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.